You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Uh, it's been a fun ride. We made it past 100 episodes. I want to thank everybody for your continued uh, listenership. It means a lot to me. I'm happy that we've gotten this far and we're going to keep going. So uh, tonight's going to be no exception. I've got an interesting topic lined up for tonight. But before we get into that, of course, the usual stuff. Thanks to everyone for the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and the nice five-star ratings on on uh, Spotify. That's a great way to show support for the show. And leaving a nice review goes a long way. And it helps me get the show out to a wider audience. If you're interested in supporting the show in another way, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. I've got a couple of different tiers. I've got one as low as a dollar a month. And I've got the more popular tier is the $5 a month tier. That'll get you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode if you're a $5 a month patron. And for everything else, of course, you know, follow the link tree. That's one link in the show description that'll take you to not only the Patreon page, but also to the Amphibicast merch store. I've got t-shirts, I've got uh, stickers, I've even got socks on there. I don't know if anybody realized that, but I've got some nice dark frog socks. If you're interested in getting a nice warm pair of socks, you know, whatever falls coming up and you want to stock up on that, some pretty cool stuff there. And I'm also an affiliate of in situ ecosystems now. And if you'd like to get a nice quality of vivarium that's really set up for dart frogs and tree frogs, check out the link. If you make a purchase through that link, you'll get a 10% discount as a listener. And a small commission comes back to me at absolutely no cost to you. It helps me kind of defer some of the costs that I incur from running the show. And you'll also find a link in the link tree to support Panamanian frog conservation as well. If you're interested in supporting a good cause, that's a great cause to support. Click that link. And uh, if you want to make a donation, it has really nothing to do with me. It really just goes like directly straight towards Panamanian frog conservation. So other than that, for our topic tonight... I've been looking to cover the Amazonian milk frog for quite some time. It's a very popular species in the hobby, but I've never had them myself, so I really don't like to comment or give advice on a species that I haven't personally kept, despite the fact that they are kind of similar to many of the popular species in the trade in terms of husbandry. But I found this paper recently. It's a, it's a bit of an older paper. It was written in 2015 by a French scientist, and uh, I reached out to him, but I couldn't get I couldn't get a hold of him. Uh, there could be any number of reasons for that. I don't know. Maybe there's a bit of a language barrier with the email, or maybe he's not in academia anymore, or I, I really I don't know. But um, I didn't want to completely abandon the topic. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the paper, and we'll kind of go through it together, because I thought it was really interesting, and it seemed a shame not to share it with the audience. But uh, he's going to get all, all full credit for it. His name is Fabian Mignet, and uh, he's a scientist out of France. And uh, the name of the paper is Biology and Captive Breeding of the Amazonian Milk Frog. And it was published in the IRCF Reptiles and Amphibians uh, section of Conservation and Natural History. And it looks like it was volume 22, issue 2, pages 68 to 75. And it was published in June of 2015. And again, the author's name is Fabian McNay, so all credit goes to him as being the author. Again, this is not my paper, this is his paper, and I just wanted to share it with all of you. And uh, Fabian, should, uh, should you ever come across this podcast, and uh, if you'd like to come on and discuss this, you're more than welcome to do so. I don't know if you're ever going to actually hear this or not, but um, the paper was very interesting. So, uh, like I said, it seemed a shame not to share it. So, what we're going to do is I'm going to start off with the abstract, and we'll read through it together. If I do stumble up here and there over some scientific names or some, um, you know, some some French pronunciations of different locations, I apologize in advance. 
my pronunciation skills are what they are. So <laughs> uh, give me the benefit of the doubt if I make a few mistakes here and there. But overall, it's uh, the paper's pretty well within the comprehension of the average person. I know a lot of people don't like to sit down and read scientific papers, but um, apparently you guys enjoy the sound of my voice, so uh, I'm going to read it to you. So let's start off with the abstract here first. Although the Amazonian milk frog is commonly bred in captivity and uh, in zoological institutions worldwide, very little information regarding these undertakings has been published. Here I report my experience with the successful breeding of the species at the Chura Park Zoo. I highlight some fundamental biological traits in order to fulfill requirements for captive breeding and to ensure the general welfare of these frogs. The game is to provide guidance that may be used by zoos, aquariums, and other facilities, as well as private contributions to conservation breeding programs for endangered anurans with requirements similar to those of this species. In general, this species is easy to keep in captivity. Larvae are easy to produce and raise with very low mortality rates. They usually metamorphose at 6 to 10 weeks. However, newly metamorphosed frogs are fragile and require more attention. Several pathogens are known to affect the health of amphibians, and stress can play an important role in immune function. So now on to the paper itself. The author goes on to give us a little bit of background information about the species. The Amazonian milk frog, occasionally called the Mission Gold-Eye Tree Frog, was originally described as Hyla resinifictrix by Gold-Eye in 1907. After several taxonomic changes, the species is now placed in the genus Trachycephalus. The genus also contains three additional species. The Amazonian milk frog is known to occur in eastern Suriname, central Guyana, Brazil, Ecuador, Colombia, Bolivia, Peru, French Guyana, and, and Venezuela. The species is found at elevations between 0 and 450 meters. Diagnostic characteristics of the species are the presence of a short, blunt snout, no folds except for a low supratympanic crest that does not cover the upper edge of the tympanum, uh, a large dorsal patch, a granular venter dorsum, and sides covered with small pustules and large size. Females can range anywhere between 86 to 100 millimeters in snout to vent length and are generally larger than males coming in at 65 to 77 millimeters snout to vent length. Amazonian milk frogs are nocturnal and arboreal, inhabiting the canopy of tropical primary rainforest where they breed in phytotelemata, uh, exclusively tree holes. Tree holes are used by Amazonian milk frogs. Uh, the dimensions are circular to elliptical, with areas of 62.8 to 451.4 centimeters cubed, or excuse me, centimeters squared. Depths are between 15 to 190 centimeters, and water volumes are between 2.8 to 90 liters. According to some of the authors uh, previously cited, and he makes a footnote here, the tree holes are located between 2 and 32 meters above ground level, exhibit pH values of approximately 6.7 to 7.0, and dissolved oxygen contents of 0.2 to 3.9 milligrams per liter. Males call from tree holes to attract females, usually between August to September and April to May, i.e. during the rainy season. However, the mating period can differ across localities. The IUCN lists the species as a taxon of least concern because of its wide distribution and, pres and presumed large population size. Although the species is not currently threatened overall, local populations are, uh, excuse me, are impacted by habitat disruption and disturbance uh, as a result of logging and expanding human settlement and agriculture. 
Amphibians are declining globally, and approximately one-third of all species are threatened with extinction. The infectious fungal disease known as chytrid is considered one of the major driving uh, forces of global amphibian population decline and extinction. Because of the global amphibian crisis, captive breeding programs have become major tools in efforts to conserve many amphibian species. Indeed, amphibians are the most threatened taxonomic group among vertebrates and probably best suited to captive breeding. The most prominent example is the increase of amphibian collections in zoos as a response to the many factors threatening those animals, uh, prominent among them the effects of chytrid. The Amazonian milk frog has been kept in captivity for nearly two decades, but very few data on rearing conditions has been published in scientific journals. Herewith, I present my experience with the successful maintenance and breeding of the species at the Turrup Park Zoo. And here we move on to materials and methods. Captive management of adults. Both adults are from the menagerie of the Jardin des Plantes in Paris. Again, I apologize if my French pronunciation is off, uh, is off spot. These two Amazonian milk frogs were permanently maintained at the breeding unit without public access at the Tura Park Zoo, housed in a glass terrarium measuring 60 centimeters in length, 45 centimeters in width, and 190 centimeters in height. It was divided into aquatic and terrestrial sections. In the wild, the species is known to breed in tree holes above ground, whereas in captivity it can breed in the basin at ground level. However, artificial tree holes that retain, uh, excuse me, retain water spray can be created in the upper part of the terrarium in order to mimic natural conditions. In our system, the aquatic portion is about 15 centimeters in depth. The physiochemical parameters of the osmos water used are 6.5 GH, total hardness of water, negative 1 KH, carbonate hardness of water. The pH value is similar to that observed in the natural environment. The terrestrial proportion, excuse me, the terrestrial portion is made from elastopore, a two-component adhesive with sphagnum peat, lianas, roots, and stones. The background and sides were covered with cocoa fiber modules to provide a natural-looking environment. A variety of natural plants, e.g. mosses, large bromeliads, etc., completed the arrangement. And there's a photograph here provided. The enclosure was housed in a room heated to 24 to 29 degrees Celsius night-day during the summer and 22 to 24 degrees Celsius night-day during the winter. A Reptisun 5.0 UVB lamp was used for lighting. Uh, only the lighting needed for animals is mentioned here. And set on a timer to maintain a 12-hour photo period and maximize reproductive success and fecundity, per recommendations in Schultz and Douglas 2003. I'm assuming that was in another paper with recommendations. So right off the bat, the captive conditions were very, very similar to what many of us do in the hobby, with the background and the plants and whatnot. The humidity was kept at 50 to 90% by using an automatic misting system, and air circulation is, ins is ensured by two small fans placed in the top of the enclosure. Now we move on to husbandry of the larvae. Eggs are left in the terrarium with the adults until hatching. The rearing tank for larvae at early stages consisted of a glass aquarium containing 15 to 20 liters of osmosed water. In nature, bottoms of tree holes are covered by one or more layers of dead leaves and decaying organic matter. In order to recreate similar conditions and soften the water, dead oak leaves were added in the bottom of the aquarium. Another alternative would be to use tropical almond. Uh, these leaves are sold in specialty shops for aquariums. Uh, 
Just like oak leaves, the secondary metabolites of the tropical almond leaves, such as tannins, alkaloids, flavonoids, and saponins, have antifungal and antibacterial properties, which prevent tadpoles from engaging infection. An air sponge filter was used for filtration. This system is inexpensive, and it ensures effective water treatment without affecting the integrity of tadpoles. The water was not heated, and the temperature fluctuated between 23 and 25 degrees Celsius. Partial, approximately 30% water changes occurred three times per week. However, the period between water changes depended among other factors, including feed rates, type of feed, and water temperature. Tadpole destiny must also be taken into account, excuse me, tadpole density must be taken into account when determining the frequency of water changes. In nature, larval density can be high, up to 15 tadpoles per liter. The maximum breeding density was widely reported or and equated to 240 to 320 tadpoles in a um, 16 by 15 equals 240 and 16 by 20 equals 320. Uh, nonetheless, raising tadpoles at lower densities by using additional aquaria minimizes the risk of food competition. The most developed tadpoles were successfully transferred into another aquarium containing approximately 20 to 25 liters of osmos water, which was unheated, containing dead oak leaves and a floating dock. Partial water changes were also made three times a week. In order to save time and space, both aquaria can be combined into a single tank. However, I strongly recommend separating the two aquaria to facilitate the monitoring and growth and development of the tadpoles. Now we move on to housing and me- housing for the metamorphs and juveniles. Metamorphs and juveniles were kept in groups of 15 to 20 in glass terraria. Uh, the actually makes reference to Exoterra here as the brand that was used. Measuring 30 uh, centimeters long by 30 centimeters wide by 45 centimeters high. That included the small water basin, cork bark for hiding places, bamboo, and artificial plants. Newly metamorphosed frogs were poor swimmers and can easily drown. Consequently, water depth in the basin was about 5 millimeters, allowing metamorphs to keep their heads above water and prevent drowning. For hygienic reasons, the substrate was absorbent paper towel that was kept permanently damp. Wet sphagnum moss can also be used as substrate. Metamorphosed, uh, me, metamorphs were maintained at the same temperature as adults, which was 24 to 29 degrees Celsius, and were misted with room temperature osmos water twice daily, in the morning and in the evening. Well-documented negative effects of exposure to ambient levels of UV radiation on amphibians were reviewed. UV exposure in, excuse me, UVB exposure in amphibians can reduce hatching success, induce developmental and physiological deformities, uh, and cause severe skin damage and or darkening decrease survival, and alter behavior. However, these effects are species-specific and vary with life history and stage and depend on context. According to Hayes et al., uh, this was a study in 1996, low-level exposure to simulated ambient UVB radiation in the laboratory causes a number of developmental and physiological deformities in frogs. These include edema, skeletal anomalies, and eye damage. Therefore, to prevent similar problems and improve the overall growth of juveniles, illumination was provided by a UVB fluorescent lamp bulb. That was the Zoomed Reptisun Tropical UVB. The choice of power for the UVB bulb is based on the model used in the study conducted by Vershorn et al., but also influences the ecology of the species. 
One recent investigation has shown that for this species, daily exposure to UVB significantly improves growth and skeletal development. Due to the potentially beneficial effects of UVB on amphibian health, I highly recommend using UVB lighting for captive amphibians that may need UVB lighting in their natural environments. In general, many amphibians prefer rather cool conditions with subdued light. Accordingly, low-power UVB fluorescent bulbs should be used rather than high-temperature UVB lights. As a general rule, adequate power UVB is usually between 2% and 5% for amphibians that require UVB in capacity. As metamorphs grew, they were sorted by size into additional enclosures. Reducing density avoids the risk of food competition. Most juveniles are reared at 2 to 3 centimeters and then transferred to other interested zoological institutions. So right there, so far, we have all the grow out. Uh, some interesting things about UVB, and um, it looks like that was uh, an integral part of husbandry for this uh, particular study. And now let's move on to diet, nutrition, and associated diseases. Successfully maintaining amphibians in captivity can be difficult due to their fastidious and changing nutritional requirements over different life stages. However, diets of captive amphibians are often restricted by the commercial availability of food. Consequently, diets need to be adapted to avoid any risk of malnutrition. Adults were fed two or three times a week during active periods, mostly on various insects, and it looks like it was uh, domestic crickets and locusts. We've got... Um, I'm terrible with the cricket, the uh, scientific names of the crickets, but uh, the locust was looks like it was Locusta migratoria. And uh, I know that locusts are available in Europe, but not here in the U.S., if that's of any consequence to anyone else. In the wild, tadpoles feed on algae, uh, vegetable detritus, and sometimes conspecific eggs, opportunistic ufagi. At Tura Park Zoo, tadpoles were fed uh, fine ornamental fish food, which was uh, the brand name was Tetramin, two to three times per day in adequate quantity. During the latter phase of metamorphosis, tadpoles ceased to feed until the tail was completely reabsorbed. Froglets were fed until about, day, uh, until about five to six weeks of age with live pinhead crickets and occasionally dusted fruit flies, and it mentions that they're hydei. After roughly seven to eight weeks, the uh, interval was progressively increased to once every two to three days. Insects, except for fruit flies, were fed a, uh, fed a complete feeder diet, the Rapashi Superfoods Bug Burger, and dusted with a mineral and vitamin supplement, and that is Nutribol or equivalent. In captivity, nutritional diseases are relatively common in insectiv- uh, insectivorous animals. Among the specific dietary problems that affect amphibians, some of the most common encountered problems were uh, vitamin and mineral imbalances related to metabolic bone disease, uh, e.g. Uh, nutritional osteofibrom- uh, osteofibrosis, and most frequently caused by low levels of calcium or improper calcium to phosphorus ratios in the insects. Indeed, many insects used as food or prey, including the domestic cricket and uh, hydei, have low levels of calcium or imbalanced calcium to phosphorus ratios. According to uh, Bernard and Allen, none of the species noted above is suitable as the sole component of a diet. However, this calcium deficiency can be corrected by feeding the insects calcium-rich food or by dusting the insects with a mineral supplement. So right out there, just to interject, it does show the importance of proper dietary supplementation uh, because 
oftentimes when we have conversations about feeders, it's generally assumed that they're kind of, well, assume that they're a complete, uh, a complete source of nutrition, when in reality, they're really not. And now let's move on to results and discussion. During breeding season, males can be readily distinguished from females by the presence of nuptial pads on the insides of the thumbs. Males begin to call at night, and eggs are deposited in water during the night. Periods of calling are are interspersed with axillary plexus, but this does not necessarily lead to uh, egg laying. Shazari et al. reported clutches of this species in nature, amounting to 106 to over 1,500 eggs. Here, the females deposited roughly 100 to 500 eggs per of a position. The eggs are black, small, approximately 1.5 millimeters in diameter, and surrounded by a gelatinous capsule. In general, hatchlings occur after 24 to 48 hours, and newly hatched larvae measure about 5 millimeters in total length and have external gills that quickly disappear. Immediately after hatching, tadpoles float to the surface of the water for several days. Some larvae measure about 3.5 centimeters with tail after four weeks of development. Only 40 days after hatching, a number of tadpoles have already developed uh, well-developed hind legs. After only 43 days, i.e. six weeks of development, some tadpoles have formed front legs and their tails have started to shrink. The time of metamorphosis has been not documented for tadpoles in the wild. Here, tadpoles metamorphosed after 45 to 75 days at a temperature of 23 to 25 degrees Celsius. And then it goes on to provide some diagrams here of different tadpole, different stages of tadpole development, which looks to be pretty consistent with many of the other species that are similar in the trade. Newly metamorphosed frogs measured between 1 and 1.5 centimeters. The dorsum varied from dark brown to dark gray. Four and hind limbs are speckled with white, and the iris cross is already visible. 87 days after hatching and about one month after metamorphosis, some frogs measured between 1.5 and 2 centimeters from snout to vent. At this stage, their skin is still smooth, and the, col- and the color of the body of the juvenile frogs begins to change. The white coloration of the arms and legs is incorporated into the dorsal coloration. Bands of dark gray and light gray develop uh, on spots on the back. And after one year, frogs look like adults and measure approximately 5 to 5.5 centimeters. The dorsal surface is primarily gray-brown in color and covered with small pustules. The tips of the fingers are blue-green. The crossbars of the fore and hind limbs are dark brownish-gray. Because growth beyond the initial burst immediately after metamorphosis is comparatively low, even with abundant food, uh, one scientist estimated that sexual maturity is not likely prior to two and a half years of age. However, uh, Jungfer and Proy in 1998 considered that males reproduce age, uh, uh, considered that males reach, reach reproductive age within 10 to 12 months, and females can deposit their first clutch of eggs at 12 to 15 months. In general, the larger frogs tended to reach sexual maturity after one year, whereas smaller frogs often did not reach sexual maturity until after the second year. Here, individuals have not reached adult average size uh, after one year of development. Especially females are unlikely to reach sexual maturity at one year of age. However, I currently have no way of verifying this, and no studies mention the minimum size at sexual maturity for either males or females in captivity or in the wild. Uh, for example, in males, the snout to vent length of the small specimen with nuptial pads from a representative sample of the population could not be used to estimate the minimum size at sexual maturity. While keeping Amazonian milk frogs at the Turtle Park Zoo, I noted that these frogs could breed year-round. 
Other institutions have reached similar conclusions. However, in order to contribute to the well-being of the animals and also to obtain high-quality clutches, I believe that providing frogs with an annual rest period is advisable. I observe a very low mortality rate throughout larval development. However, I observed a wide variation in developmental time. While most tadpoles finished metamorphosis about 10 weeks after a deposition, others did not metamorphose for 14 to 16 weeks or even longer. Variation in growth among individuals from the same spawn reared in similar conditions can result in genetic influences, competition, or complex interactions with environment. The range of this variation in nature is unknown. Nonetheless, further research is necessary in order to gain better understanding of the process of affecting growth of Amazonian milk frogs in captivity. About two to three weeks after metamorphosis, I noticed an abnormal. Uh, I know I observed an abnormal mortality. Some individuals showed abdominal bloating, edema, and death usually occurred within 24 to 48 hours after the first clinical sign. The edema may be caused by a variety of pathogens or toxins such as nitrates, parasites, bacteria, fungi, or viruses. In addition, diversions from the ideal environment conditions may be extremely detrimental to health and may contribute either directly or indirectly to the disease or act as some stressor that indirectly predisposes amphibians to disease. Many factors constitute stresses in captive environments. In amphibians, several studies have shown that handling may be stressful. As for uh, example, the whistling frog. Also, according to Carlsted and Shepard, the process of the public can be a stressor from which a confined animal has no escape. In light of the above, I isolated the enclosures in a room without public access, and I restricted access only to the animal keeper. The frequency of handling and changes of terraria as part of cleaning operations were reduced to an absolute minimum. Consequently, the mortality rate stabilized and then decreased substantially after a few weeks. Although interesting, I did not conduct autopsies of froglets to identify the pathogen or toxin responsible for the spike in mortality after metamorphosis. Regardless, I strongly recommend that stress factors such as repeated handling, poorly adapted housing conditions, changes in terraria, excessive food, be reduced in order to avoid weakening the immune system of frogs. Conclusions This species is not particularly demanding and can be bred very easily in captivity under conditions that comply with various hygiene and animal welfare standards. Before attempting to breed Amazonian mill frogs or any species with similar biology, we must consider that hundreds of frogs can result from a successful breeding. Also important is the need to test any new animal uh, for BD and ranavirus. This will prevent the risk of spread within an animal collection, but also in nature during the potential reintroduction operation. I hope my successful keeping, uh, breeding, and raising of this species provides a responsible and reproducible model that can be used for contributions to conservation breeding programs for endangered species that have specific requirements as this, faci- as this fascinating frog. Okay, so this was a lot to take in in, a, I guess, a relatively short period. But basically, some of the key takeaways here are the importance of proper husbandry, diet, and nutrition. The author makes a very good point in particular about nutrition and the fact that the crickets and uh, fruit flies and things that we offer are kind of the staples, but uh, not necessarily nutritionally complete, particularly in regards to the calcium and phosphorus ratio. From what I understand, it's generally a one-to-one calcium to phosphorus ratio, I believe is what's recommended, although I don't know that that's actually attainable. Uh, I believe something closer to that is generally what's opted for. 
So a you know a proper balance of those two minerals is generally what's needed for um, proper health to avoid meta- uh, metabolic bone disease. One of the things that I had always been curious about, and I'm just kind of speculating here, is how these animals are able to sequester the nutrients that they need in the wild. I mean, because to my knowledge, I don't know of any insects that actively produce calcium unless they're getting it from uh, little arthropods like isopods or things like that. But that's an, that's a discussion for another show. Another thing was also the UV exposure. I've, I've had different conversations with people about UVB exposure, and I think that the research is progressing in a way that may show that Older, more intense UVB bulbs may have caused or did cause substantial health risks or pose uh, substantial health risks and cause problems for frogs uh, going back a few decades. To my knowledge, lighting technology has advanced in such a way that there are options that make it more safe. That doesn't necessarily mean that every UVB bulb out there on the market is safe for a particular amphibian. Uh, He did note that they used the Reptisun 5.0. Uh, I've had different conversations with different people, and I think the best thing to do would be kind of use your discretion. You don't want to overdo it, but you don't want to underdo it. Um, again, it's it, that's a whole other matter. I would honestly recommend going back and listening to the episode that I did with Ryan McVeigh of, of VivTech. We had a discussion about the different intensities of UVB and UVA radiation and the benefits that they may have uh, for reptiles, but of course, obviously, their effects on amphibians is not as well understood, and um, maybe that's something that'll change in the future. But for people who use UVB, I mean, it was used successfully in this experiment. Uh, you know, whether it was a direct causative agent, I don't know. It was incorporated into the husbandry. I don't think that that was the actual focus of the experiment. But it was used in this experiment successfully without any major injury to the frogs or really any injury that the author noted. So if you want to incorporate UVB, uh, it seems like it's it's doable here. I know that that's kind of a contentious topic with people, but um, so we had the UVB, we had the nutritional, um, the uh, nutritional components. Another thing also was cleanliness. I know I've spoken to other tree frog breeders, particularly like Mike Novi, and like Mike has impressed upon me and others the, the how important cleanliness is. So you could very easily see a situation where an unclean terrarium could result in health problems. I know that the author of this this article mentioned that. He kept the froglets on wet paper towels. And I know people have different opinions on wet paper towels versus other types of setups, natural substrate and whatnot. Um, cleanliness seems to be a very important thing, and particularly with tree frogs. So that's another another concern as well. Uh, final thing worth noting, though, is that these animals were generally raised within the parameters that are accepted by most people in the frog community. Uh, it was done in an exoterritorium with a naturalistic background. I'm not quite sure of the term that the author mentioned. I, I believe it's probably something similar to polyurethane foam that the background was constructed of. I, I really couldn't find exactly what the, the American or, or English-speaking counterpart was, but I assume it's the same thing, the whole cocoa fiber background with bromeliads and branches and whatnot. Um it would have been interesting if there was a little bit more about what initiated breeding. I didn't see any mention of a rain chamber or anything like that, but it seems to me that the breeding seems to be fairly straightforward, but he also does raise a very good ethical question at the end is, well, they're going to produce a lot of offspring. Do you really want to do this? So my advice to people is don't get a pair. Of, if you're if you're the average person, don't get a pair of frogs and, 
like try to start breeding because you're going to end up with a lot more than you can handle. And unless you can move those frogs, it's going to be a big, big process. So leave it to the people who leave it to the, the professional breeders because it's with them being the explosive breeders that they are. I couldn't imagine having like a couple of hundred little Amazonian milk frog froglets uh, running all over my house with nowhere to go. So well, in any event, I hope you guys enjoyed this. It seems to be, it seems to provide a very, very good standard of care considering it was done in a, you know, a scientific institution. It was done at the zoo uh, under some pretty specific criteria. So um, I, I, unfortunately, I can't really offer any personal experience on these other than what I've read in this uh, in the study. But uh, for those of you who are interested in the topic, uh, I'm going to provide a link to the paper in the show description as well. If you want to read the paper for yourself, there's some diagrams in there. There's some pictures and whatnot, which is pretty cool. And uh, if you are interested in keeping this species, I hope that this was not necessarily the only source of information for you, but I hope that it was a helpful one as well, because uh, I believe that a substantial part of developing a husbandry protocol is getting as much information as possible. And uh, scientific studies are generally unbiased. They, they don't have matters of personal opinion and things like that, which also have value as well. But um, it's an obje- a pretty objective paper, and I think that that's a great way to find fine-tune your husbandry based on things that are factual and have been published. So in any event, other than that, uh, it was an interesting read, and uh, I know this was a little bit short, and uh, I'd like to develop the, the topic somewhere in the future, maybe with someone who's got some more personal experience with the species and can maybe share some specific situations, you know, some ins and outs, what to do when you have problems. But... Um, Yeah, I enjoyed it. I hope you guys did too. Moving forward, I've got some great stuff coming up. So catch up with you guys again soon.